as we get started in this year, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to really, I was thinking and spending a lot of time praying over the last couple of weeks of 2016, what do we need as a church? What does God want us to do as a church in 2017? What, what do we need to be more His light so that we can live like His light outside of this place? And you've, you've heard me say that so many times, but I just want to constantly reinforce that the reason we gather together on Sundays is not so that we can come together and you can hear me talk and you can hear great worship music and all of that stuff. That, that's not the reason we gather. The reason we gather is to kind of rally ourselves for the week ahead so that God can speak His truth to us so that we can come around other believers and, and kind of bolster our light as we're around others who shine the light. We can shine our light a little bit brighter and, and, and work off any of the darkness that may have kind of crept into us over the last week. And hopefully we can go into the next week and shine our light a little bit brighter for Christ. We want to be a church that shines. We're living lives that shine. And so I was thinking and praying, what do we need then if we're going to be a church that does that? in 2017. And what, what God kept talking to me about, revealing to me, and showing to me was we need to know who we are before we know what we're supposed to do. And I think I need to explain that a little bit. Because I think uh, uh, it's real easy for us in the church, myself included, growing up, this was, it's real easy to kind of hone in and focus in on the things to do, right? It's easy to go to those lists in the Bible that says, do this, don't do that do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And so we spend a lot of time learning the do's and don'ts of Christianity. But if you'll read through Scripture, and this would be a great thing to look for as you're reading through the Bible over the course of this year, look for how God works when it comes to giving people a mission and what He does leading up to that mission. And I think what you'll find time and time again is God doesn't just come in and, and give someone a mission without first showing them who they are. They show them who they are, and, and, then, and then He sends them out on a mission. Identity precedes activity. And it's not, not, I'm sure it's not 100% of the time that way throughout Scripture, but, but God helps people understand. He helped Moses, and He helped Abraham know who they were before asking them to do something, and that sometimes it took a great journey and a great length of time for them to understand who they were before they would do what God had called them to do. But first, God wants us to know who we are, and I think that's important for us as a church is we need to know who we are. Who am I? Who are we in Christ? And so as, we were, as I was praying through this and thinking through this, I think uh, one of the things that just kind of kept coming back is, is the book of Ephesians. And what we're going to find, I think, is a great foundation for who we are that leads us into what we do. We're going to find a lot of what God says about us and the gift of salvation, and then we're going to learn about uh, more of, of salvation. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. And then later in the book, later in the series, we're going to learn the to-dos and the to-don'ts of, of Christianity. But those are birthed and found and based on our identity in Christ. So we want to spend some time here going through the book of Ephesians. I'm telling you off the bat, we're going to take our time. This may take us all the way through Easter. If, it, if I feel like we're going too fast and we're not getting something, we're going to slow down and it may take us past Easter. We'll stop on Easter, celebrate Easter, and do all of that because Easter is the cornerstone of our faith. It is the fact that Christ rose from the dead. We're always going to celebrate that. We'll never skip over it. But we're going to just go through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to study it as best we can and get what we can 
out of this for God to teach us. Now, I want to say something in a little bit of a prodding kind of a fashion, because that's kind of my job. Um, my mom, growing up, was a piano teacher, and so a lot of, the, a lot of my life was spent listening to uh, people in the other room learning how to play the piano, and it was everyone from little kids all the way up to adults who wanted to learn, and, and my mom would you know, kind of talk about how things were going with piano lessons. She would talk about some of the students that she just really loved, and she'd talk about some of the ones that kind of constantly frustrated her, and without a doubt, or probably, not without a doubt, but almost without fail, um, the ones that frustrated her the most were the ones who didn't practice. And if you ever tried to teach someone something, you know how frustrating that is. So imagine you're trying to teach someone how to play an instrument. And now you come together for a lesson with the instructor, and, and they are trying to teach you a little bit more than you learned last week. But you didn't do the work from last week, and so you're not any further along than you were last week, so the teacher has to go back to what they taught you last week and try to reinforce that, and hopefully you'll practice some this week so that maybe next week when you go to your lesson uh, that, that you'll be able to go a little bit further. And uh, it always frustrated my mom and other uh, teachers that I've known that you're kind of paying the teacher to practice. It's like you can't practice throughout the week, so, but I know if I go to this lesson, I can practice for that one lesson because I'm paying to be there, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay, pay to practice. And um, I, think, I think the same thing can kind of be true for us as Christians is that, is that we don't always want to put in the work of practicing. We just kind of want to, you know, show up and practice when we should be taking a few more steps. Now, um, one of the one of the roles God has given me here is to you know is to kind of prod you you know I'm I'm not your typical kind of shepherd um, I'm not the I'm not the kind that kind of comes alongside and and loves and coddles and 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 that kind of thing I'm more you know and you can see this if you ever if you ever see me working with the cows on the farm you can see I'm more of a get behind you and get you going in the right direction kind of a shepherd and um, sometimes that takes a little more. Uh, aggression than others, and I don't know what that's going to look like in this year, but I'll, I'll, you'll kind of see it come out. But what would it look like for us as a church if, instead of just kind of showing up every Sunday and practicing while we were here, we practiced all week long, and every week we kind of got together, we were a little bit further along than we were when we showed up the week before. And I say that because if we're going to really get what God has for us throughout the book of Ephesians, it's going to require us to put in some effort throughout the course of the week. That's why I put up earlier in the week, you know, read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. If you have questions, send them to me, and I'll do my best to, to answer them. And I'm not going to, uh, not, I'm not putting anybody down or hammering anybody, but I didn't get any questions. And I don't know, maybe everyone has a full and complete understanding of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 14, and you're a lot further down the road than I am, or you didn't have a time to read it and send a question, or, you know, I don't know. Or didn't get the assignment, yeah, because it was on Facebook. But um, what would it look like if starting from this point forward, from this, this week ahead, so next week we're going to be finishing out the rest of chapter 1 uh, next Sunday. So what if you went home starting today and you just read the rest of chapter 1 and you did that every day? You know what I did on the way here this morning? I listened to 
uh, on the Bible app. You can listen to the Bible as you're driving. So I listened to the whole book of Ephesians on the drive-in, and then I listened to chapter one about five or six times over and over again, just so it's, it's kind of saturating into my mind and my heart. And you could do that really easily. You could listen to the whole book of Ephesians in about 20 minutes if you wanted to, and you could listen to the whole book every day of this whole series and just kind of let God, let that truth of God's Word sink into your heart and really saturate who you are so that you become saturated with the truth. And that's the whole point is we want to become saturated with the truth. If you remember the illustration a long time ago, what, we, what we're saturated with is what's going to come out when the world squeezes us. Well, what is going to come out when the world squeezes us if we're not saturated with the truth? It's going to be all of the junk, all of the garbage, all of the bad things of who we once were and who now God has changed us. Are you saturating yourself with the truth? So I'm hoping and praying that as we kind of go throughout this series, that not only will we become people who work on our, on our walk with God all week long, but it really sets a new habit, a new pattern, a new routine of getting alone with God, letting God's Word speak to you and letting Him speak to you in the quiet and in the silence of your time with Him. So without any further ado, let's get into the book of Ephesians. It's not going to be on the screen. It's a long section of, of the Bible, so... Uh, you'll have to either pull out a Bible or pull out your phone and pull out the Bible app. I've got the Bible app open, and look, Charlie Foster wants to be my friend on the Version Bible app. But uh, pull out the Bible app, and you can the Scripture is right there at the very top of today's event, and you can follow along. This is a letter, not now John, and I'm going to get a bunch of requests. John Miller wants to be my friend. I'm just not going to respond to anybody. I'm just going to leave you all hanging and wonder, does he really like me or not? Um, let me just give you, I'm not going to get real deep into the history of the book of Ephesians. That would be a great study for you to go look up on your own. Bible study tools is a great resource. Bible.org is another good resource. They have tons and tons, way more material than you could possibly consume when it comes to the book of Ephesians, and so well, you could probably consume it, but it'd take you probably a year to, to really do that. But you can go look, up, look at the history and, and some of what was going on. Paul wrote this book. Some people are questioning that. I think that's ridiculous. He says Paul wrote it and, uh, right there at the very beginning. Anchor Builder wants to be your friend. I don't know who Anchor Builder is. But... Um, <laughs> this is one of the four letters that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome. He was in prison while he wrote this, and, and that should kind of really shape our perspective and our thinking about this letter. We should really have a good understanding. If, if somebody can be in prison for the gospel and still be so concerned with people outside of prison following Christ that they, they have to write these kind of letters and get the truth out, that should really shape our perspective when we're going through trials in the coming year. When, when we're going through hardships and heartaches and, and the hard parts of life, what is it that's going to come out? So Paul wrote this while he was in, in prison, and it's actually a very... Uh, a sister epistle is what it's called with the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians. About half of the book of Colossians can be found in the book or in the letter here to the Ephesians. And so um, if you want to go read Colossians, that's another good overlapping. It'd be a great thing for you to just kind of be reading those two books over and over as we go through the series and hearing the truths that kind of overlap between those two letters. 
What you may not know, and, and some of you do, many of you do, but uh, letters, this was a letter. This was not a book. Paul didn't you know, publish a book. This was long before the printing press. This was a letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And what would happen, generally speaking, what, you know, Paul would write a letter, and then the church would gather together, and they would sit around and read out loud the letter, and everyone would listen to, listen to it, and then the letter would tend to get passed around to other gatherings, other fellowships, other churches in the, in the area, and they would just kind of gather together and hear about it. And so I thought about, and I want to ask a question. Um, I don't really need to do this because of the, U, of, of the Bible app that we have here, but I thought about you know, reading the whole, well, first I thought about reading the whole book today and just kind of reading through it and taking our time and just kind of reading it like we did back then, but uh, there's a lot in here. I don't want to overwhelm you, but would you, uh, if I recorded an audio version of the book of Ephesians, would you listen to it? Would you use it? I don't want to do it if no one's going to use it because it will take a, a decent amount of time to do it, but would you do that? You know, you can let me know by text if, if that would be helpful for you. Uh, we could just send you an MP3, or we could even put it on a CD for you so you could pop it in your car and just listen to it over the course of the series. But that would help maybe some of the text come to life. But we're going to go and read the first 14 verses as something that you should know before we get into it. Verse 3 through 14 of today's uh, text is actually all one big, long Greek sentence. It's all one sentence. Now, the, the editors who edited our versions have actually put in some periods and kind of ended the sentences for us to make it a little bit easier for us to grasp and understand, but, but the whole first uh, 14 verses, or uh, 3 through 14, were all one sentence, and so that's one big, long, cohesive thought that he is sharing with us. A couple more notes of uh, foundation before we get into that, though. Like I said, the first half of Ephesians is what to believe. It's who we are. It's the foundation for practical living. And so we, we need a foundation if we're going to live the lives that we've been called to live. And so this is what, what Paul is doing here in the first half of his letter to the Ephesians. He's laying the foundation for the life that they're supposed to, uh, supposed to lead. So it's what you're supposed to believe while the later parts are what to do. So it's, you might say it's doctrine, and there's actually a lot of doctrine and theology and rich content in the first three chapters, but the doctrine isn't supposed to be just something we fill our heads with so we have knowledge of, of God. We're supposed to actually use that doctrine and translate that into conduct, which is going to come later. The first half is the part that's supposed to be understood, while the second part is to be obeyed. The first part is the foundation for identity. Well, the second part is living out that identity. The first part is foundations for unity and being the body of Christ, while the second half is how to, the practical ways to have unity. The word unity is used two times in this, in this letter, and it's about the only two times that it appears in the New Testament. Uh, there are, the idea of unity is in other places. Jesus prayed for unity among the believers and followers of Jesus Christ, but didn't use this word. Um, the phrase, in Christ, comes up 38 times throughout this small little book of Ephesians. So when we're reading through that, that should be something that you key into. When you see that phrase and you hear that idea of in Christ, there's something important that Paul is trying to communicate. The word church is in here nine times. Peace is in here eight times. Love is in 
the letter 20 times. Lord is in the book 24 times, and grace 12 times. If you would like some resources to go a little bit deeper, there's, uh, like I said, uh, the Bible.org has a lot of resources, and there's some commentaries you can read there, one called Constable's Notes. Uh, you can, Dr. Constable, you can go read his. Um, if you want to be, you know, kind of nerd out and geek out and go like to the depths of, of the abyss of the book of Ephesians, you could go read uh, Harold Honer's Ephesians, an exegetical commentary. I don't have that one. I'm not reading that one, but more power to you if you want to go to that. Um, and then a, a good one that's a little lighter would be the NIV application commentary. And that's just fun to mention because the guy's name is funny. His last name is Snodgrass. And so you can go look for Snodgrass's NIV application commentary and get some information on the book of Ephesians. So, like I said, it's important for us to know who God is so that we can know who we are because our identity precedes our activity. And so we're going to spend the first chapter here looking at salvation from God's perspective. And it's important that we understand that because there's some really dense ideas in this first chapter. And if we don't have the right perspective, if we're not coming to it from the right position, it's going to be confusing and it's going to be hard for us to understand. The second chapter will be salvation from our perspective. It'll be salvation as we understand it, as we see it from our side of the thing. But, but the first chapter is dealing all with salvation from God's point of view. And the reason that we want to know God's point of view is because we are made in His image. We are made in His likeness. And so if we want to know who we are in Christ, we have to take a step back before that and understand who God is. And so much of our life we have just kind of focused on, you know, the blessings that I receive, the things that I want, and the things that I want to get as opposed to who is God, how do we understand God. So we're going to spend some time in the first chapter looking at who God is and salvation from His point of view. Let me read the whole thing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the beginning of that long sentence. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, who is the one he loves, talking about Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. There is so much in here that's going to be hard to unpack it all. So you just need to read it and read it and read it and let God show you more and more about it. But it's a 202-word sentence that Paul is putting out here to start off this letter. And it's kind of broken down. We can break it down a little bit. I'll do my best to break it down for us this morning. And we're going to talk about the parts as we go along. First, we are blessed by the Father who selected us. We are blessed by the Father who selected us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're blessed by the Father who selected us. Praise be to the one who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, verse 5, he predestined us. Big word, we'll talk about that here a little bit. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And then he kind of ends up that sentence, that not, not sentence, but that phrase with, to the praise of his glorious grace. He's going to turn now and talk about Christ. But what, one of the things that I'm hoping we will see as we understand salvation from God's perspective is that I'm hoping we will maybe have a little bit of a change of perspective. Let me, let me try to illustrate. When we think of blessings, what do we think about? You know, when maybe you watch that, uh, the White Christmas with Bing Crosby, and he's saying that, you know, count your blessings instead of sheep song, right? Sometimes at night when I can't sleep. I would sing it, but then I would just do a disservice to Bing and that golden voice that he had. But we, when we stop and think about our blessings, what are the things that we think about? What are the things that you think about when you think about blessings? You know, we probably go to things, you know, the material things, right? We go, well, I'm, I'm blessed to have a house, blessed to have a family, blessed to have food, blessed to have this and that. God has blessed me with these things. And I think that's our, our nature. We just kind of go to the material things that God has blessed us with. But our greatest and our most valuable blessing is the one that we have received but we can't see. The greatest and most valuable blessing is the one we have received, but we can't see. That would be God's gift of salvation. Look at this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. His pleasure. And well, it was, it was God's pleasure to give us salvation. God was pleased to give us salvation, as we're going to see in just a, just a brief moment, that, that God went to great lengths to give us and to bring us and to usher in the age of God's salvation for us. It was, it was something that God was pleased to do. I think we do a disservice to God when we, when we make it kind of this obligation that God had to do uh, the thing of sending his son to die for our sins. That was something that God was pleased to do. And though it was horrific and, and awful, he could see from his perspective how it would play out for the millions and billions of believers and knew that this moment of horrid behavior towards his son 
but have infinite results. See, I think a lot of the time, you know, we, when something happens that we can kind of tangibly see, we give God praise, but how many of us stop to give God praise for the gift of our salvation? How many of us are just so overjoyed with the fact that God would save us? And as we see that God from, from the very beginning, way back even before the creation of the world, He had a desire that we would come to Him and that we would be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. Are you grateful for that blessing? There's this phrase in here, in the heavenly realms, something that Paul actually talks about quite a bit throughout the book of Ephesians. Forgive me if I say book, it's just kind of an old habit. I know it's a letter, but if I say book, you know what I'm talking about. With this phrase in the heavenly realms, and I think what Paul is really trying to get at, and it's actually going to be the, the, the penultimate moment of the book here, you know, several weeks away, we'll get to it, but the heavenly realms is, is a very important part of the book of Ephesians. And I think Paul wants us to understand that there is a spiritual reality that we don't often see, that we never see, but we don't even recognize that is just as real as our three-dimensional reality, and it's much larger than we dream. That there is a spiritual reality going on in the world around us that we cannot see, that we cannot put our finger on, that we cannot tangibly understand, but that does not make it not real. You know, it's just like like we don't want to only have in mind the physical things that we're thankful for. There is also an entire spiritual world that exists outside of here. And as you're going to see, we are a part of this spiritual reality as well. And that's going to be really hard to understand. It's a really big concept. We'll spend some time doing our best to explain that so that you understand it as best you can. We won't fully understand it this side of heaven, but we'll do our best. But we are a part of the spiritual realm even now. Now, I want to get into this idea just a little bit. Um, what does it mean to be predestined to sonship? Good question. We're going to get to that in just a second. Um, first, we need to understand that when you see this word apostle, when it says Paul, an apostle of Christ, what that means is he has authority to say what he's about to say. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and so he has the authority to say the things that he's going to say. What we're going to discover is that um, the easy part, maybe uh, later, what we need to focus in is the harder part here at the beginning. So what I mean is later we, you know, we're going to easily see how we need to modify our behavior to conform to God's ways and behavior that we're supposed to be living up to. That's the easy part to see. What we need to focus on here in the first few chapters of Ephesians is modifying our thinking. We need to conform our thinking to the patterns of God's thinking. We need to allow God to come in to our hearts and our minds every single day, every single Sunday, every single Monday, every single Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and start to conform our thinking according to His higher ways and stop being trapped and bound by our physical ways that we are in here. And I think that is probably one of the biggest challenges all of us are going to face as we go through the study. Because it's easy to put our hands on the tangible, but what we need to understand before we go to the tangible is the intangible, the things that are happening that we can't see. Now, this idea of predestination, uh, the, the, one of the theological terms here that's kind of brought up is election. I'm not going to get real deep into this just because uh, there's 
centuries and centuries of arguments that go into this. But let me, let me just briefly cover it so we kind of have, have a, an understanding as best we can. So election, when you hear that word election, we're not talking about the election we just went through. We're talking about the elect. And what does that mean, to be one of the elect? That means that you're one that God has chosen from the beginning of the world. Here's a quote. It says, election means that the existence of the people of God can be explained only on the basis of God's character, plan, and action, not on some quality and the people who are chosen. So in other words, this phrase in here, to the praise of His glory, becomes very important because the whole reason we are chosen to be one of God's is for the praise of His glory. We are not chosen because we have done something to earn God's approval. We are not chosen because we have lived our lives in such a way that He wanted to choose us. We're not chosen because we have some character or attribute or quality in our fallen, broken selves that God just said, you know what, that quality is so good in them, I want them to become one of mine. We are chosen because the praise of His glory. So God has chosen us. God has given you and given me the gift of salvation for the praise of His glory. He is praised in bringing us salvation. He is praised in predestining us. That's the whole point. The whole point of our lives is not so that we can get the blessings of God. It's so that we give praise to God. Predestined. Well, let's get to this, let's get to this word, predestined. Uh, this is one that I've spent a lot of time kind of wrestling with over my life here. I'll explain in just a, a little bit. Let me first read the verses. Verse 4, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, and He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. In Him, Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. The point of predestination is God. That's what we need to understand. We are not the point of predestination. We are not the focus of predestination. God's glory is the point of predestination. If we understand that, if we can come at it from the right perspective, I think it'll make sense. The problem is we want to come at it from our human perspective, and we start to wrestle with it because we don't like the idea that someone is in control, and we're not. So we need to understand that the idea of predestination is something that is, that is bringing God glory, and this whole first chapter is kind of unpacking the idea of salvation from God's perspective, and so we need to get that perspective. Let me try to explain predestination as best I understand it. I will be honest with you, it's something that I'm continually learning and trying to understand better and better as I grow. I grew up in what was the Wesleyan church and what we would call Arminian theology, and that was a lot different from most of the theology that a lot of people grew up in, you know, conservative, Baptist, evangelical movement kind of grew up with. Uh, so, and this is one of the big topics that there's actually a big debate on between these two forms of theology. So there is no possible way I can do it any justice in the few minutes that we're going to try to cover this morning. 
But how I understand predestination now, and the, the best way that I've been able to understand it is actually by thinking about it from God's perspective. So he chose us before the foundation of the world. That's what, that's what we just read from Paul. He chose us from before the foundation of the world, and that's important to understand. There's this whole spiritual realm that exists outside of our present three-dimensional timeline reality that we live in and the here and now. And so choosing us from before just gives credence to that idea that God chose us from before in the spiritual realm and so that we're going to come into an existence in the spiritual realm that we're going to be a part of God's plan and design out in the future, which we can't possibly grasp in the here and now. The struggle that I always had and that many of us always had with the idea of predestination is that it feels like, it seems like God is choosing some, and this is if you go study the idea of predestination, that God is choosing some and through the same act of predestination rejecting others and sending them to hell. Right? That's what the struggle seems like. And so that's the problem, I think, with that perspective is that we're, we're trying to look from our perspective into God's understanding of predestination and bring our understanding to it and understand it in that way. What we have to understand is that God exists outside of time and space and all of the confines that we have. And so for God, He sees the beginning at the same time that He sees the end. He sees the creation at the same time, time frame and the timeline that He sees His coming back and bringing the new Jerusalem to the earth and all of the things that happen in between. And so because of who God is and His perspective and where He sits, He sees everything that happens and every choice that is made and how all of those are going to lead one way or another. It's like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Kind of. <laughs> imagine, you know, imagine you're sitting in the stands, you know, right in front of the Macy's building that's at the end of the parade route, and, and you're kind of watching these acts and these bands, which we watched it this last year because it's part of our Thanksgiving tradition. We, we watched, the, watched it, and there are far fewer marching bands, which is always disappointing to me because I love the marching bands because I was in marching bands because I was cool. And so, you know, uh, there were fewer and fewer of those and more and more lip-syncing, except for Tony Bennett, who refused to lip-sync and should have lip-synced because it was just not quite up to par. But um, there's a lot of, so, but imagine you're kind of sitting in the stands right in front of the Macy's building, and you see all of these events, these acts just coming through one after another, after another, after another. You're sitting at the very end. You're seeing all of the things that have, that have kind of transpired. You're seeing people as they've walked a couple of miles. You're seeing bands as, they, as they've marched a couple of miles, and now they get to the very end of the route, and here they are. But you have not seen what has happened in the rest of the parade route. You only have this tiny little perspective of what's going on. You don't know if the, if the uh, what's the guy with the baton called? Major, drum major, yeah. You don't know if he dropped his baton around the last corner. You don't know if he tripped and fell flat on his face around the corner before that. You don't know if, if the trombonist um, <laughs> pants were coming down. And I just say that because that was an experience that I had at one point in time when I was marching in a parade and my suspenders came unclipped, and so I had to spend a great deal of time trying to finish the parade, playing my music and holding up my pants at the same time. <laughs> And you get to the end, and you see this kind of, this ultimate final thing that has happened, and you have no idea what has taken place 
the rest of the route. Now, imagine, if you will, that you are in a, you know, a blimp, not one of the balloons, it's not tall enough, but you're, you're in a blimp and you're kind of up over the parade and you're kind of floating where you can see. You can see the beginning and you can see the very end and you can see the act that's going on at the, at the very end and you can see the act that's going on at the very beginning and you can just kind of have this perspective where you see the whole route and you see every single act that is going on at the very same moment in time. It would be impossible to know what happened when you're sitting at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day building to know what happened miles back, but if you're up from the right perspective and you're seeing, sitting where you are, then you can see everything that's happened. Of course, you know, there are little small people and you can't really see because we're not God, so we don't understand. God is God and He can see everything that is happening. So from His perspective, we can see, He can see everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen. So, when it comes to the idea of, of predestination, God did choose us from the very beginning, but that also doesn't mean that we don't have a choice. And this is where we've gotten into really tremendous, terrible, awful territory as the church throughout our history, is that there were times when we took this theology of election and predestination to an extreme, and we said, if everyone is predestined, if God has chosen people, then God will do whatever needs to happen to bring someone to Him. We don't need to get involved in the process. And so churches, actually whole denominations, pulled their missionaries out of the fields and they stopped doing outreach and stopped trying to bring people into the kingdom so that people would experience the gospel because they decided by their theology that if they are predestined, if they have been elected, then God will bring them in no matter what. That's what happens when we take theology and we try to put it on God from our point of view. So we, we can't just kind of pick and choose and pull the pieces out and ignore other parts of the Bible because the reality of all of Scripture is really a both and. It is, yes, God knows. Yes, God predestined. You don't know. Go do whatever it takes to bring in everyone. You don't know, so live your life in such a way so that someone else might see because what you don't know is that God may have put you in that person's place, in that person's life to shine that light so that, that when they see you and they come in contact with you, you are the thing that was designed by God from before the creation of the world to bring them in to this ultimate gift of God's salvation for God's glory. And there's no way to know that. No way to know that. So the only responsibility, the only burden we have as followers of Jesus Christ is live the life we're supposed to live. Shine the light so that those who come in our contact maybe have the hope because you don't know God may have put you there for that very reason. In fact, I would argue that he did. And every single person we come in contact with, God has put us in their path to shine the light so that we, if we don't have the opportunity to bring them to Christ, would play a role in leading them to Christ. So we cannot ever, 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 ever allow our understanding of salvation to determine how God sees the whole thing. Instead, we do what God says when we understand who we are. There's a whole lot more to it than that. I can't possibly get into all of that. I do have one more quote here that I want to leave you on that thought from Charles Spurgeon. He says, I believe the doctrine of, of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept this great biblical doctrine. 
We can struggle with it. We can wrestle with it. We can, we can go and dig and try to understand it better and better, but we don't have the option or the choice of not believing it because it's clear in Scripture. It's a part of how God works. I love that line. I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> All right, let's move on. I'm running out of time. I apologize. Verse 7 through 12. In him, Christ, we have redemption through the blood, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, Christ. And him we were also chosen, having chosen, having been, this is Christ, and Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So God works out everything according to his will. That should not be any surprise to us. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, Paul is talking about the first believers and the first Christians, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. There's the point. In Christ, this phrase, in Christ, is mentioned 38 times in the book of Ephesians, like we said. It's mentioned 11 times in this sentence that we're reading today. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, believers, those of us who follow Christ, who have put our faith in Christ, we are now in Christ. That's, that is our definition. We are in Christ. That means that we're in the family. So if you have family, you know what that means. You know, we have a family. We have you know, my wife and I and four kids, Hannah, Henry, Harry, and Harper, and so they know what it means to be in the Lindner family. They're a part of the family. They are identified by being in our family. I'm identified by their behavior on Sunday mornings when they're not acting like they're supposed to, just like they are identified by my behavior on Sunday mornings when I'm not acting like I'm supposed to. We are the same family. We're identified by one another. Our core identity at the very central part of our identity, of this identity of being in the family of God, of being a part of God's family, the thing that draws us all together is Christ. He's at the center of it all. He's at the, at the, at the middle of everything that happens when it comes to being a follower of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. It's a very deep rich and complex relationship. It's not just something that we add to our lives. It's something that God comes in and takes over everything about our lives and start to use it for His glory. We are in Christ. And because you're in Christ, because I'm in Christ, we have privileges that stem from being a part of that family. We, we have privileges that, that happen as a part of being in Christ. And that's what is being covered in a lot of this passage. It's kind of itemizing a list of all the privileges from being in Christ. Let's go back to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's a privilege of being in Christ. The forgiveness of sins. Aren't you glad your sins are forgiven? In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. God's grace has been lavished on us and he made known to us the mystery of his will. This is another blessing. The mystery of God's will has been made known to us. We're going to spend some time later in the series talking about that phrase, the mystery of God's will. But he made known to us the mystery of his 
will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. There's another blessing that we have to pay attention to. We are a part of all things in heaven and on earth being brought together under one head in Jesus Christ. Here's another blessing. In him we were chosen Having been predestined, you're choosing God, choosing you, God bringing you, God doing what it took to get you to follow him was a part of his plan, and it's a blessing that we have to acknowledge that we have received. We have been predestined. It's a good thing. You can be thankful for predestination according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with his purpose. There's another blessing. Everything that God is doing, he's working out in accordance with his purpose. It's got a plan. There's a reason behind everything that's happening. God isn't just kind of up in the sky willy-nilly doing things just to kind of mess with our lives. He has a reason that he's leading us towards an ultimate purpose, and that is to bring him glory and bring him praise, being in Christ in the heavenly realms. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. That is a good list that would be worth memorizing. God has blessed us greatly. And in fact, this passage kind of echoes another passage as you're thinking about it. If you're you're looking, you might be able to see that this passage is is strongly similar in its theme to Romans chapter 8. And if you've never read Romans chapter 8, please go read Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite songs that we sing here at church comes from that, that God is for us. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. That, That is our God. And in Romans chapter 8, we see this phrase, that if God didn't spare his own son, what won't he do for us? Not that phrase, that idea. God, who sent his son to be the sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, if he was willing to do that for our salvation, what won't he do for us? God is for us, and if God is for us, who could ever stand against us? Lastly and quickly, we're blessed By the Father who selected us, we are blessed by the Son who saved us, and we're blessed by the Spirit who sealed us. Verse 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The seal. If you want to understand more about the seal, I'd actually tell you to go read the book Song of Solomon. And there's a very close idea in there. It's it's written to a different audience. So you have to bear that in mind. It's written to, you know, husband and wife and the husband and wife relationship. But the husband and wife relationship very closely mimics as a, is a uh, illustration God uses for the relationship we as the church have with, with God the Father, and so it's important to, to take note of that. So don't discount the book of Song of Solomon because of that. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into that, so uh, if you want to talk about that book, not everything in there is a correlation, so let's just leave it at that. <clears throat> but in that book, there's the phrase, set me as a seal upon your heart. 
Set me as a seal upon your heart. It's something that we don't understand. Now, we need to stop and quickly get a history because you've probably seen this in some of the old movies. You know, they would send a letter by messenger and they'd kind of scroll up this letter and they'd put a drop of wax on it. And then there was a seal that they would take and seal that envelope with the seal. And so when you saw that seal, you knew that this was an authentic letter that came from the person that says that they were writing it, right? So, so that's what the seal was. And you see that a lot. So they, they were sealed so that you knew the authenticity of what was happening. Well, here we see the same idea being brought to bear on us as followers of Jesus Christ. Look at this. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, because we believed in Christ, we are now marked in Him. We're marked in Christ, in Christ with a seal. What is that seal? The promised Holy Spirit. So we have been marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That presence is the marker of the fact that we have been, in fact, brought into the kingdom of God. You're sealed. What that means is you are God's own possession. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means that you are God's and listen to this. This is very important because what we tend to hear when we're kind of talking about these big ideas is we hear it from our human perspective and we think, oh man, that's a, that's a lot that's required of me. And if you jump right to the to-dos and to the to-don'ts, that's exactly what it's going to feel like. But what we need to understand is that by becoming God's possession, by becoming a part of God's family and God's kingdom, not only are we His, but He is ours. And that is a good thing. You want to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. You want to have the seal of God's approval and mark on your life because you don't just want to be His. You want Him to be yours. I am His and He is mine. Don't you want to be God's? If you want to understand more about that, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and read that chapter. And there we see your body is a temple and this phrase that you probably have heard, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And that price was the life of Christ. You are His and He is yours. I want to finish by kind of coming up to this last idea because this is kind of encapsulates the whole first 14 verses here. Before I do that, I just want to encourage you to please read verse 15 through 21. Read it a bunch of times this week. Let, let it just kind of sink into your thinking. Read the whole first chapter as many times as you possibly can so that when we come back together, we'll have this good thinking of who God is and his view of salvation. So read it, study it. Go to BibleStudyTools.com and look up words and, and look at other translations and all of that kind of stuff. It will not be something that doesn't reward you. It will pay off. It will have dividends. I want to ask a question. Do you value God's invisible blessings as much as your visible ones? Are you praising God for the blessings that you can't see as much as you praise Him for the ones that you do see? Do you praise God for choosing you? Are you worshiping God for having chosen you to be one of his sons, one of his daughters? Are you living your life for the praise of his glory? Or are you still just trying to get the material blessings from God, treating him as a genie in the bottle, hopefully getting what you want out of God before everything comes crashing down? Or are you living your life for his glory, for the praise 
of his glory. And then as God's possession, this is what this is leading to. Are you living your life holy and blameless out of gratitude for all that God has done? How we live our lives matters, but the why has to be there first. Now this whole first chapter, I think, could kind of be categorized in this way. Let me ask, has anyone ever received a gift and been embarrassed by the generosity of the gift? Has anyone ever received something and just kind of been just kind of embarrassed? I, I'll tell you, this happens to me every December 23rd so far for the last couple of years. You guys give me this gift, and you totally embarrass me with your generosity. Just embarrassed. I mean, it's like I'm standing up there, you know, we're doing this thing. We've worked to put together the service, and we want people to come and hear about Jesus and the birth of Christ. And then right in the middle of this, it's like... Really? Do we have to do this here? And then, it, then reading through this, it really helped me kind of get a good perspective on that. An embarrassment of riches. And the way I'm getting kind of perspective on it is, is this, and that's because that should be our everyday life. Every single day, we should be embarrassed by how much God has poured out on our lives. Every single day, we should just be overwhelmed with the fact that God has gone to such great lengths so that we could be blessed, so that we could be His and He could be ours. That we, should, we should be so overwhelmed at the truth of Ephesians chapter 1 that all the way back before the very beginning of the world, God chose you. Yeah. So, but I didn't do anything to deserve it. Right? This is, it's like, I, I don't earn this gift that you guys give me, but like Alex said in Christmas Eve, like, you gave it to me out of love. This is what love does. And this is what love from God does. This is what love from God looks like. You didn't do anything to deserve it. In fact, if God had chosen you after you were born, you would have done a lot of things to never deserve God's love. So God did it for his love, for the praise of his own glory. So going all the way back to the very beginning, before you were ever chosen, what we need to understand, we should be embarrassed by the riches of God's grace and God who is rich in mercy and poured everything out on us because it is for his glory. He has given you and he has given me a great gift. And now what do we do with that gift? We don't dare squander it. We don't dare hide it under a basket. We don't dare put it in the closet so that no one ever sees it. We do what the, what the Ephesians is going to tell us to do. We shine it and we live our lives so that those who don't know will and God will receive the glory. We live our lives for the praise of his glory. So my hope and my prayer, my desire for us this year is just that. Do you see this kind of huge picture over above us, this perspective of God doing this beautiful gift of salvation and bringing it down into our lives and saying, you know what, you don't deserve it, but here, (laughs) you get it. And wouldn't that, if we really understood that, if we really got it, wouldn't that really just drive us to all those people who probably are predestined that are in our lives that God has kept bumping up against you and bumping up against you and bumping up against you and saying, hey, genius, will you finally shine your light for me, for this person, because you're the point, you're a part of the program, God is using you to bring them into my kingdom. And when we understand, for the praise of his glory, my life is for the praise of his glory. Everything God has given me is for the praise of his glory. It doesn't matter then what I get out of it. What matters is God gets the glory. So let's stand together. We're going to close together.
and a time of worship. We're going to take communion. And it's a time for us to really just stop and look at the price that was paid. Like we said back on Easter this last year, the value of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. And God sees great value in you because he was willing to send his own son to pay the price for your salvation. You have a great worth. And that's what we stop when we remember that God loved us enough to send his son to die for us, to pay the price for our sins, to forgive us for our sins, that our sins would be forgiven because of the work Jesus Christ did, not because of the life we led, but because of what Jesus Christ did. And so we can stop every single Sunday, and he commands us to stop. Every time you stop and remember, remember the point. Remember, do this in remembrance of me. It's not a tradition, but remember what was done for your salvation, and that is exactly what we do every single Sunday. We stop and we remember. But before we do that, I want to pray for us. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you. I thank you for all of the blessings that you have given to us. I thank you for the ones that we see, but Father, I pray for myself and for all of us here Open our eyes, open the eyes of our minds, open the eyes of our hearts, open the eyes of our spirit to be able to see the blessings that we have never thanked you for. God, would you show us those blessings and would you just pour them out on us this morning, that the, the visibility of what they are so that we will give you the praise. And Father, turn our hearts and our minds away from this constant asking you for the material things to thanking you for the things we have never thanked you for. God, I thank you for my salvation. I thank you that you sent your son to die in my place, that he paid the price for my sins, that he paid the money and his blood that I should have paid with my, with my own life, that the ransom that I needed to pay, he paid. I thank you that you did all that work for me. I thank you that through his resurrection, you justified me, that you brought me to a new life in Christ, and that he ascended and now sits at the right hand, interceding on for, with you for me that he doesn't just sit there interceding for all the mistakes, but that he sent, that you sent your spirit to live and mark me as yours, as your child, as your son. I thank you that I am marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, and that mark means that I am his and you are mine. Father, help us to be thankful. Teach us to be grateful and to live our lives for the glory, for the praise of your glory. Forgive us for the times when we seek your hand more than we seek your face. Father, turn our hearts and our minds and our thinking away from seeking the things you can give us to seeking you and knowing you and loving you and having more of you in our lives. May that be the mark of my life. May that be the mark of all of our lives here in this building this morning for this coming year and for all of the years ahead. May that be who we are. In Jesus' name, I pray and ask these things. Amen.